Welcome back to Midwretched, dear friends. Hello, friends. We hope you're doing well. We always do. Yeah, we really do. Let me get your face back up. There you are. You're so cute. Ah, thank you. Just love your face. I'm having a good hair day. You are having a good hair day. It's got some body to it. I know, which is so rare for me. Yeah, it's unusual, and I like it. A little ferrofosity thing going on. Yeah, Not quite, I love but that. you know. I am hot as hell. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah, the air conditioning doesn't reach into my pod den. So I'm just like sitting here in a boiling room, like sweating my butt off. And I appear to have popped this week. So I am quite large and feeling like a hot rhinoceros in the humid, humid heat. So I am so sorry. That's a quick pop. Yes, they tend to pop quickly with the second ones and the subsequent ones. So where I looked at like. 25 weeks last time is where I look now so it's intense it's intense there's no hiding it um it's here so yeah just it's here it's coming yep she's a coming she's a coming bib is coming yep my toddler thinks that she is she is in the fetus is in my boobs so she keeps like patting my boobs and talking to them as though that's where her baby sister is and it is so funny (laughs) and I keep trying to correct her and she just will not hear it like she is not here for it she keeps saying no she's in there I'm like fine she is in my right tit fine (laughs) fine so I have tried to give you anatomically correct progressive information and you are just not having it my nephew has decided that he has, I believe, five babies in his uterus. Oh, my God. I love that. Yeah, she told me that on Facebook. I was like, oh, my God. It <laughs> <laughs> is so good. I guess they've just been brewing in there for months now. Yeah. So we're going to see how that goes. Yeah, that's what mine keeps saying, too. She keeps saying, I've got a baby in my belly, too. I'm going to push it out of my vagina. <laughs> okay, cool. So why is it in her belly, but it's in your boob? I, you know what? That's a really good question. I think <laughs> she's a toddler, so the most protruding part of her body is her belly, right? Uh, okay. Prior to today, the most protruding part of my body is my boobs. Yeah. And my butt. But uh, yeah, I think that's why. You're not going to poop it out? <laughs> no. That is not the plan. Not the plan. Yeah, so that's where I'm at this week, and um, just like getting my head around this story that has been, you know, eating my life for several weeks because it's a whopper. Yeah, I know only tiny bits and pieces about this case. Um, I'm excited, scared Mm -hmm. to learn more. Yeah, it's gruesome, but, and well, I want to talk about this later a bit because as with many cases, there's a degree of fact and there's a degree of added in or like supposed information that, you know, has kind of changed the way that this case I think is viewed in large part. So mm-hmm. I want to kind of, you know, think about those things. And I'll certainly say like when I'm talking about anything that might be iffy information or what have you, but 95% of the information I'm presenting today has been verified by multiple sources mm-hmm. and then we'll we'll go a little bit into some of the uh more speculative stuff when we talk about this guy's upbringing all right let's do this okay so i'm gonna bring you to first i'm gonna we're gonna jump around a little bit so uh hold on but i do have a master's degree in storytelling so i promise there's a point okay 
So I'm going to take you to the fall of 1994. And we are on the forested grounds of Fox Hollow Farm in Westfield, Indiana. Okay. Sounds idyllic. It's beautiful. It uh, Westfield is a very affluent suburb north of Indianapolis. North of Indy, you kind of have these kind of a cluster of really affluent suburbs. Carmel, Fishers, Westfield. A lot of money up there. A lot of big properties, stuff like that. And Fox Hollow Farm is one of those properties. It's an 18-acre wooded estate. It is beautiful. Little 13-year-old Eric Baumeister was playing on the grounds of his family's estate here in Westfield. You know, he was a real active kid, so he's just like bumping around the woods and trouncing around, having some adventures. And on this one day in the fall of 94, his adventure took a pretty dark turn mm-hmm. when he found a human skull in what is essentially his family's backyard. So he's a 13-year-old boy. So, of course, he thinks this is really cool. Yeah. He had just learned about how, this is um, quoted from his mother, how in the olden days, bodies turned into, people turned into skeletons. So he comes Mm -hmm. back to the house thinking, like, I found an olden days skeleton. This is so cool. So he marches back up to their Tudor Revival Mansion, which was beautiful. And showed his mom, Julie, the skull, asking her if she mm-hmm. thought it could be from the olden times, right? That's probably what I would have done, too, with 13. Yeah, why not? Julie freezes, asks her son where he found it, and he tells her, you know, out by the patch of trees, you know, this way. And he said, there were a lot more bones out there, maybe even a whole person. He's very excited. She asked him to show her, and uh, so they walked back to the spot where he found the skull, And Julie did indeed find multiple bones that appeared to be human. So she took the bones inside to ask her husband about later. We'll come back to this scene. What she and Eric didn't know was that they had unearthed a victim of perhaps one of the Midwest's most prolific serial killers. Yeah. And he is potentially connected with two series of serial killings. And we're going to talk about those things separately. Because one of those series is technically still an unsolved case or considered to be an open case, and the other not so much. So that was 1994 in the fall. I am going to now flip us back to the 80s, the wonderful 1980s. It's a wonderful time. Beautiful things going on. Absolutely. Flock of seagulls rolled the airwaves. They did. And I want to talk about a serial killer known as the I-70 Strangler. Okay, so I-70 is one of the longest east-west highways in the U.S. I'm not going into a ton of background detail about like a particular town or a particular region because kind of the center landscape of this case is I-70 and kind of the outlying, you know, areas around it. The entirety of I-70 runs almost the entire continental U.S. Yes. We're going to be talking about a specific span between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. I know that span painfully well yeah didn't you just drive this basically all the time i drive this one (laughs) yeah so you drove through this entire crime scene basically yep so in my view well okay officially there are 12 official victims of the i-70 strangler Mm -hmm. i think that there is an absolute possibility that there were more victims that were either never identified or tied to the case or that didn't get found I think that with freeway killers, that tends to be the case. Yeah. So when we say 12, that's 12 officially. 
I mm-hmm. uh, really, really wonder. And I'll talk about a couple of gaps in between these cases. Because there's a fairly consistent schedule here mm-hmm. where I wonder mm-hmm. if, you know, we're missing maybe one or two victims. I don't think it's probably a huge number. I think it's probably one or two or three. But I do think there's a possibility that we're missing a couple of people here. All right. So we start off in June 16th, 1980. So right at the top of the decade. Nice. The first body that is found is that of 15-year-old Michael Petrie. And he was found along a rural stretch of road in Hamilton County, Indiana, which is the county that houses some of those affluent suburbs that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Michael was only 15. Yeah, that's young. Yeah. He was really young. Now, despite his age, he was a fairly well-known sex worker in the area of Indianapolis. Mm. And you'll see that. We'll see that a few times here. So... He was known to frequent the gay bars of Indy. You know, he was still a kid, though, living at home. So he was reported missing yeah. on the 7th of June. He had been seen once around the 10th or 11th of June uh, in an unidentified vehicle. But the people that saw him were fairly sure that it was him. Okay. But after that point, on the 10th or 11th, he was not seen again until his body was found. Wow. Yeah. So his body was found nude and strangled in a ditch, like I said, along a creek in Hamilton County, Indiana. Wow. You know, each of these scenes is going to be very consistent physically. There's a strangulation, and there's always partial, if not full, nudity. Okay. There's going to be signs of sexual activity of some kind on these scenes, and more often than not, the bodies are going to be put into a ditch or a stream, or like a ravine along a roadside, or whatever you call those things, mm-hmm. um, or a drainage ditch, that type of area is where we're going to find a lot of, of these bodies. Now, I do want to say that I have more information on some people than others, which is often the case with serial killings, and, and that's not for lack of trying ever. Yeah. The best information that I found came from the Dayton Daily News, so good job, Dayton. Hi, Dayton Daily News. Yeah, they did a really nice job like contacting the families of all of these victims, or at least trying to contact the families and getting some snippets of information. Okay. So where there's detail about some of the personal lives and things like that, that's where it comes from. So good job, Dayton. We love you. You did something right. Yes. Good job. Did a couple of things right. They produced you. Yeah. I like it. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's surprising because the Dayton Daily News, it it's not a big paper. It's not like they have a ton of resources, especially in the 80s. Yeah. I find, though, that the more of these cases I look at, it seems like what happens is that one scrappy reporter in one of these like mm-hmm. mid-sized city newspapers latches onto a story like this and does not let go. That for whatever reason, it just yeah it hits them and they follow it. Yeah, and, and I respect that. And those end up being the best resources. Like I've appreciated those types of sources way more than like you know these huge huge newspapers like the Chicago Tribune or the Detroit Free Press or what have you it's these like Mm -hmm. it's the Dayton's and the South Bend's and these like mid-sized cities that have been doing a really really good job on these things and the Cleveland Plain Dealer oh my gosh Cleveland Plain Dealer I love you Uh, so good (laughs) so good so anyway thank you Dayton for this good information I appreciate it even though it really brought some of these victims home because you can find lists of them over and over and over again but Mm-hmm. There's so little information out there in large part. Um, so it was just really refreshing to find that good information, you know. So the next victim to be found was Maurice Taylor. Maurice was 23. He was found in July of 1982. He was already living kind of a hard life. 
which mm-hmm. ended up with him kind of most recently living like squatting in the basement of an apartment building boiler room so oh. yeah just having a hard time his father's whereabouts were unknown at this point and his mom when maurice went missing his mom was actually locked up in an institution for some kind of unspecified mental illness Oh, wow. Yeah. So the problem with that is, is that we have no idea for certain how long he had been missing mm-hmm. before his body was found. He was found in July 82. The last murder was June 80. He wasn't so decomposed that they weren't able to get fingerprints and things like that. But it was July mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. He wasn't looking great. He was found topless, uh, and he was found pretty near the site of Michael Petrie's body. So again, in that rural Hamilton County. Mm-hmm. What I think is kind of interesting is that these cases are attributed to the I-70 Strangler, but these first few are not near the I-70. Okay. So if we think about that, then he, we think about maybe operating within a familiar radius and mm-hmm. then branching out and out and out, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. right now we're just kind of in these back roads in Hamilton County. We're not even on the highway yet, so to speak. So they were found in a pretty affluent area, but it sounds like both of these guys lived pretty tough life. They did, yeah. Well, they both lived in Indianapolis. They were found in these okay. rural areas. Basically, and the Hamilton County is like, it's the county where you've got like Carmel, Westfield, Fishers, these towns. The southern half of the county is that like very upper class suburbs. The top half of the county, it gets rural really fast. Like when you're driving through it out of Indy, it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. man, okay, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and then farms. There's like no transition at all. Honestly, taking I-70 through Indianapolis, it is exactly like that. You're in a city, and then you're suddenly in farms. Yeah, and if if that's how it feels now, I imagine it felt even more that way in the early 80s. So... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like it's it's as built up as it's ever going to be now, you know, I imagine. Back then, I think it was mostly like big estates and then farms. Yeah. Maurice, uh, like Michael, was a pretty well-known sex worker. He wasn't found totally nude. He was found topless. But we have in common that they're sex workers. It starts to feel like a pattern is emerging mm-hmm. a little bit. This is only the second case, so we're not getting like an official linkage yet. And the best guess, like I said, was strangulation on this one. But there was a little bit too much decomposition to be totally sure. Okay. Yeah. Our third victim is another young one. Delvoid Baker was only 14. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was murdered in early October of the same year, 82. So we're moving really fast here at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, Delvoid came from a large religious family but also kind of a fractured one. So Mm -hmm. he was kind of like carted between households and things like that, kind of shuffled around, kind of a transient lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that transient lifestyle, also a kid that really wanted to earn extra money. So he took any job he could get. As a 14-year-old, he had a paper route. He did odd jobs, things like that. Now, unfortunately, in his early teen years, a friend of him got him started working as a sex worker. Very, very young in the area of Monument Circle, which at the time was well known to be frequented by teenage sex workers specifically. Mm -hmm. The clubs and the streets kind of out there. So, God, that's crazy to think about. I know, I know. It's crazy to think about the the desperation that would drive a 13, 14-year-old, you Mm -hmm. know. 
and the fact that there was like such a strong community of them just really says something kind of frightening a little bit yeah so um there's actually kind of a really when i found this detail it was really upsetting the last person to see him alive before he was taken by his killer was a man who came forward to say that he had paid him $20 for oral sex. So his last John came forward to say, I saw Del Void on October 3rd, or on October 1st, I believe, and that was the last time anyone had seen him alive. October 3rd, his body was found okay. in southern Hamilton County. So we're at the same spot. Partially nude and strangled. Now the other problem with Del Void's case is that it would take a while for him to be connected with the other victims because he was the only non-white victim of the I-70 Strangler that we know of. Uh, okay. Yeah. So he was the only black victim, and it seemed like maybe that was kind of a one-off, like, quote-unquote, doesn't fit a profile or whatever. Obviously, we know now that that's not. Yeah, we've talked about that before, yeah. that, that that level of profiling is more myth than reality exactly. in most by cases. And large, yeah. yeah, by and large. So I want to next talk about Michael Riley. Now, I don't know a lot about his life prior to being a victim of the I-70 Strangler, but he will be the first one um, to be found along I-70. So to my mind, okay. he signals kind of a, uh, a turning point in the case. So, right. and just as a uh, little side note, unless I say otherwise, all these men were last seen in, in Indianapolis. Okay. 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 Good to know. It started to feel really redundant in my notes when I said, last scene leaving the blah, blah, blah in Indianapolis, in Indianapolis, in Indianapolis. So unless I say otherwise, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, Michael Riley, he was seen leaving the Vogue, which was a gay theater and club in Indy. And he was seen leaving with an unidentified man on May 28th of 1983. What makes Michael's case hard was that his family did not know that he was gay. So when you look at, like, some of those relationships and kind of putting together his timeline, it's really hard because he seemed to be kind of operating in isolation of his loved ones. Yeah. And his family was very, very confused. And he actually had a much older girlfriend who was also very confused about why he would last be seen in a gay bar. Oh, wow. That's hard to put all together. Yeah, it is. And, of course, we don't want to make suppositions about somebody's sexuality. We just know that he was Mm -hmm. last seen in a gay bar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that his his family and friends were surprised that that was the case. So about a week later on June 5th, his nude and strangled body was found in a ditch south of Greenfield, Indiana, uh, this time mm-hmm. in neighboring Hancock County. So we've moved over a county as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll start to travel a little bit to the east along the I-70. Okay. Now, Eric Rotger made my heart just sink when I read about this guy this child, I should say, he was 17. Now, his case would come two years later, which, given the frequency of these other cases, makes me think we're missing somebody. Yeah, it makes sense, because they're happening in pretty rapid succession, and then you have a yeah. two-year gap. Yeah, so I I think that a one-year gap is reasonable for this case, but I don't feel like a two-year gap is, Okay. personally. Yeah. Now, Eric was last seen in 85, so that means that we are... Between 83 and 85, we don't have any more cases. I don't fully buy that, basically. Yeah. Um, Now, on the morning of May 7th of 85, Eric had a full day of job interviews lined up for a summer job. He was looking for a summer job, and he didn't make it to any of those interviews. 
So that was the sign to his family that something was not quite right. Now, he was known to be a sweet, mild-mannered kid, creative and super resilient. His family had endured a lot of tragedy. His mom died pretty young of cancer, and he was kind of at her side kind of the whole time, and just a resilient kid, sweet, nice kid by all accounts. He loved music, and he had a cat named Zepp, which he named after Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Yes, that's so cute. I know. I totally love that. He was also really, really tiny. He was 5'3 and about 120 pounds. Um, So if you think about that from kind of a grizzly standpoint, easy to overtake. Mm -hmm. Now, his father would say that he did not believe that Eric was gay. He told that to the Dayton newspaper. But he did tell the paper that Eric and his friends dabbled in drugs, that he tended to kind of attract, like, funky characters um, strange people, quote unquote, and that he may have not only been consuming drugs, but also dealing, like dabbling and dealing, and that overall he was just kind of reckless because he was extremely trusting, and that's kind of why his father thought that he maybe had gotten into some trouble. Okay. Now, it's believed on the day that he went missing, May 7, that instead of taking the bus to any of those interviews, that perhaps he had hitchhiked, and that was how he met his killer. He wasn't okay. seen getting on any of the buses that he would ordinarily take to any of these interviews. Okay. So, unfortunately, uh, he was found partially nude and strangled uh, in a stream in Preble County, Ohio, which is just on the other side of the border. And say so we're getting further and further out, though. So it's just east of the town of Lewisburg. So mm-hmm. uh, we've kind of traveled like three or four counties now to the east, mm-hmm. right? So Michael Glenn was 29. He is one of these ones we don't have a lot of information for. He was last heard from by his mom on Mother's Day of 86. So -hmm. we'll say mid-May 86. His body was found in August of 86 by joggers, but would go unidentified until 89 when fingerprints could finally confirm who he was. Basically, the local PD in the area that the body was found, you know, wasn't able to, to disseminate those fingerprints as quickly as they probably would today to every Mm -hmm. PD that might have, right, him on record. That's significantly older than a lot of his other victims. Yes, it is, isn't it? So Mm -hmm. you'll see that start to happen in these later couple of cases. Michael Glenn was 29, and we don't know a lot about him. Like I said, he worked as a handyman. We knew that he lived in Indy, but that's kind of all we had on him um, until he was found. So then James Robbins would be our next victim. He's 21. Also a bit of a mystery. He moved to Indy with his mother from the Mishawaka area, so up here in our Michiana region. And all we know about his last known whereabouts was that he was seen leaving his mother's house on October 15th, 87, headed south. A couple of days later, his nude strangled body was found in the town of Gwynville, just south of the I-70. So we're back in Indiana now. Yeah. Yeah. But we're just kind of like ping-ponging kind of back and forth across those like border counties basically yeah and not too far away from each other like really we're talking about a 30 minute radius yeah it's really not like a crazy drive to be taking Mm -hmm. to any of these places i think what's indy to columbus like two hours two hours yeah yeah. so that's kind of the maximum you're looking at here is like an hour and a half because we never get quite to columbus yeah so that's kind of what we're looking at here now uh this one is a heartbreaker as well. Stephen Elliott was 26. 
He had come out to his family in 1979, and his family completely rejected him as a result of that. Prior to that, he was already kind of estranged from his family because they had really hoped that he would be born a girl, and he was not. So simply because of that, he was met with a lot of cruelty in his Mm -hmm. young life growing up. When he came out in 79, he basically left home soon after that and pretty much seemed like he was out of touch with his family. His body was found in August of 89. We're back in Preble County, Ohio is where his body was found. And Mm -hmm. even after his father had the nerve, the gall, to tell the Dayton, uh, that paper in Dayton, Dayton Daily News. The Dayton Daily News. He had the gall to tell the Dayton Daily News, basically, that uh, the gay community is a sick society, quote, and that he essentially would never be forgiven and got what he deserved. I just put that out there, basically kind of give a little bit of context, not that it would be a surprise to us about, like, why some of these cases might go under-investigated or... Why is no one hounding uh, on these cases? Why aren't these being linked yet? I'm not talking about an investigation yet for a reason. Because it wasn't really happening. Okay? Yeah. And families yeah, like that tell you why. Well, it reminds me of the Jeffrey Dahmer and how he got away with so many killings just out in broad daylight. Yes. Because even when people did report the police didn't take it seriously mm-hmm. he get caught in broad daylight by police chasing down one of his victims and like oh those silly gays yeah exactly exactly so there's going to be a hero that comes to play in this story later that kind of changes everything but until we meet this guy this particular investigator we're talking about cases that are like tenuously linked yeah. half-heartedly investigated and that is just really depressing. Well, and then you add on top of it uh, jurisdictional differences, mm-hmm. and there's just nothing's going to happen. Yeah, and just these, like, you know, you see the small town PDs doing the best they can, you know, mm-hmm. but like with um, Michael Glenn, who went three years without being identified, it wasn't anybody's fault necessarily. It was just that, you know, it just took a minute to get these linked or to get him identified because it just, you know, it didn't really occur to these departments to, you know, oh man, let me take these to this town. Let me take these to this town. Let me take these to this town. It just wasn't happening, you know? Yeah. Uh, I want to talk next about Clay Boatman. Clay Boatman is one of our oldest victims of the I-70 Strangler. He was 32. Okay. Uh, He was also a really like pretty up and up guy he wasn't mixed up in a lot of the stuff that our other victims were he was an lpn a licensed practical nurse he was a very compassionate person he loved true crime actually yay and he would often discuss cases with like-minded friends you know i felt my heart go out to him hearing about that Mm -hmm. he was uh just described as a quiet sweet person a little self-conscious about his age you know worrying Mm -hmm. that he wasn't you know as attractive as he used to be which you know, who in their early 30s does not fight with that a little bit. So I just, being the exact same age, I just felt, I just felt a kinship with Clay. Now, Clay faced a little bit of tragedy in his like late 20s, early 30s when his mom died. But after Mm -hmm. his mom died, he got really serious about finishing his schooling. And that's how he became a nurse. And he also kind of dealt with his addictions at that time. So he was... Go, killing it, Clay. I know, I know. And he was really coming out of a dark place and just doing a really, really good job. He had good friends. 
you know, a quiet person, but just doing, doing his best, you know? So he disappeared in early August of 1990 on his way to a local gay bar called Our Place. Now I want to specify that he disappeared on his way to the bar. Now, whether or not he made it to the bar is unclear. Okay. Yeah. He was not seen inside of the bar. Okay. I personally suspect that he made it to the parking lot. I'll explain why later, but that's a, a theory that I have. Now, his body was found soon after his last appearance uh, by a group of kids in Eaton, Ohio. Yeah. And we're getting further and further away from Indy now. We are. Which also means that our killer is either in the car with live victims for a while or in mm-hmm. the car with deceased victims for a while. Yes. My personal theory is that he's in the car with alive victims who don't necessarily know where they are going. I believe that a little bit easier than the alternative. Heat in Ohio is also in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, they all are, really. It's literally carved out in the middle of a state park. Weird. I mean, it's it's solid halfway between uh, Indianapolis and Dayton. Mm. And we're going to stay in Ohio for this next one as well, or at least the next um, body found. So... Thomas Clevenger was 19 when he disappeared in late August of 1990. So Clay Boatman disappeared in early August. And at this point, we have a matter of a couple of weeks before we have the next person go missing and then murdered. Thomas Clevenger had a hard life. He had a well-known criminal history, even at that young age, violent outbursts. He stabbed a headmaster at his school, for example, And those rages were often fueled by alcohol, although he also had a diagnosis of some kind of intellectual disability. Oh, okay. He also had a lot of early childhood trauma. He witnessed the death of his six-year-old sister early in life. He saw her get hit by a car. Oh, my God, that poor guy. Yes. So he had a really hard life. And basically, it's kind of a final fit of desperation. He turned to sex work, Mm -hmm. potentially to fuel his habits or to fill a void. We don't know. But that's kind of what he was up to right before he disappeared. Although he was also making efforts to try to turn his life around. He had asked a girlfriend to help him learn how to read. He didn't know how to read um, at 19. And he had also started going to AA meetings. He really wanted to be able to go back to school so that he could kind of get his life together. It breaks my heart that these last couple of guys are guys that like been through shit, Mm. seen stuff, and are just wanting to do better. I mean, they all break my heart, but... But these ones just hit especially hard because it's like they're trying to get out of something and then something completely tragic happens, you know? Yeah. And his first victims were so young that they never had a chance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Okay. So his body, like many of the others, was found semi-nude and strangled in early September outside of Greenville, Ohio. So this next victim is our last known victim of the I-70 Strangler. Okay. Otto Becker was 42. So he is quite a bit older than the other victims. Um, Mm -hmm. His body was found on October 7th of 91 in a ditch in rural Henry County, Indiana. Now, in some accounts, he's not always linked to the I-70 Strangler, mostly by virtue of his age. Yeah. But also because he was not known to either visit gay bars Uh, He was not known to be a sex worker. He was not known to be in any of these places where it seemed like the I-70 Strangler was picking up a lot of his victims. Mm -hmm. He spent most of his time in homeless shelters and uh, missions, just kind of seeking help. So 
I don't know what I think. He was found in similar state to the other victims, but given those details, I, I understand why there's skepticism about whether or not he belongs in this set. I mean, it's still somebody that's in a, at a level of desperation and a level of need mm-hmm. and that puts you at a level of risk. So Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Now, the other turning point in his case, it has a couple of bits of complexity that the other cases don't necessarily have. His actual vehicle was found in Columbus. Now, we don't know when the last time he was in that vehicle or the last time he was in Columbus. So whether or not the vehicle was still like in his possession, we don't know. If it had been used in the course of this murder, there was no evidence to suggest that in the vehicle itself. But he had a car and it was found in Ohio, in Columbus. But there were also witnesses that came forward to say that they saw Otto in a car with two other men, one holding him down while the other one drove. Okay. So what the police did with this was that they took those witnesses and uh, showed them pictures of people already convicted of similar crimes, Uh and no match was found. What is wrong with that particular technique? Well, if they're people that have already been convicted, then I would assume that they've already been arrested and are in jail. Exactly. And that is where the investigation in large part started and stopped on Otto Becker. Ohio. This is Indy. Wait. Yeah, this is Indy. Indiana. Yes. Whatever. Same thing. We can still be mad. Same avoid. Basically same thing. So those are all of the victims of the I-70 strangle. I want to talk a little bit about how the investigation kind of went down. So in 82, we've got a couple of years under our belt, a few victims at this point. A task force of eight, eight officers was created by the Indianapolis police. And then after Mickey Riley's body was found in 83, a few more were added to that task force. Now, at the same time, there were four other men murdered in the Indianapolis area. The similarities was that they were all gay, they had all hung out in gay bars, uh, and that they were killed in the same time span between 81 and 83. The differences were the MO of the actual killings themselves and the locations. Uh, These victims were Gary Davis, Dennis Brodsky, John Roach, and Daniel McNeve. They were found more in like the Southern Indy area, Mm -hmm. and all of the I-70 Strangler bodies had been found north of Indy and into the country, whereas these bodies were found kind of still within the city. What we can concretely say is that the 80s in Indianapolis was a dangerous place to be a gay man. Um, Yes. And definitely a very dangerous place to be a gay male sex worker. Um, And so you saw a lot of tensions start to rise, obviously, kind of in the community at the same time. Now, the FBI was also asked to join the investigation, and basically, because of the difference in MOs, the two sets of cases were then unlinked. So those four victims I just talked about were unlinked from the case as a result of the FBI digging a little bit further than the IPD could. Okay. So that kind of part of the investigation kind of rose and fell pretty quickly, and they were looked at separately from there. Now are they still looked at separately? Yeah, they are uh, still looked at separately. Yeah. Okay. Um, and some of them uh, we do have attributed to different perpetrators now. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Is like, did we ever solve any of those? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about those briefly. Some of the initial suspects, they came and went pretty quickly. The, one of the first suspects was this guy, Duncan Patterson. Uh, he had been in Indy. He had been arrested uh, for some molestation of young boys 
in the area, and he had had a contact with Delvoid Baker, and that he admitted that he had paid Delvoid Baker for sex, but said that he did not kill him. He didn't have anything to do with the case, and he passed a polygraph. So, you know, he, he was a bad guy. He was convicted on other charges. He was not convicted in this case and ended up being excluded as a suspect, basically. Yeah. Now, one other interesting suspect is Larry Eiler. We know Larry Eiler, right? We do know Larry Eiler. Yeah. He's a real scumbag. He is. Real, he real is. scumbag. We'll cover him one day. Yes, we will. We totally will. Now, he was linked. Now, we'll cover Larry Eiler later, so I don't want to give, like, the entire case away, but... We can give a bullet point or two. Yeah. So, he was, wow, a very, very awful person. <laughs> um, yeah. He was found guilty of murdering 21 teenagers in Indiana and Illinois. Now, people really liked Larry Eiler for these killings um, because the profile of the victims fits very well. And they did both often discard bodies along the highways. Larry Eiler had ties to the area in the sense that his mom lived in Richmond, Indiana, where a lot of these bodies are found like near Richmond within, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, that kind of stuff. The problem was is that Larry Eiler generally killed via stabbing. Yeah. And so the series of strangulations didn't quite come to play there, right? But he was looked at. Similar MO in the sense that he targeted young gay men. Exactly. And he did later confess to two of the killings in Indy that were unrelated, that were ruled to be unrelated to I-70 Strangler. So he did confess to Johnny Roach and Daniel McNeve. So that was able to take two of those four additional killings kind of off of that list. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now those were pretty much all of the suspects that police looked at in real time. Mm -hmm. The I-70 Strangler case is considered to be an open case technically or an unsolved case technically. Nobody has ever been arrested or convicted of the I-70 killings. I want to make that very, very clear before we move on to the Mm -hmm. rest of the story. Yes. Yes. So just kind of tell me your thoughts about the I-70 killings. Give us a, do you got a profile? What do you think? Oof. It makes me think of, so there is a lot of trucking that goes back and forth between Mm -hmm. those main areas. Lots of industry between like Dayton and Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So my guess would be somebody who's traveling that road. A trucker is what kind of comes to my mind or somebody that travels there for work, somebody that's familiar with the area, because some of those places where the bodies were found were real middle of nowhere places. Yes. Yes, definitely. And some of them were, you know, not directly on I-70, but within 20 minutes of an off ramp. Mm -hmm. It sounds like somebody who's comfortable there, somebody who knows where they're going when they travel down I-70. Yeah. Yeah. So comfort, a locus of um, familiarity, right? Yeah. Those are the things we kind of have to think about, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to take the I-70 Strangler killings, and I want to very briefly mention that uh, there was another series of murders along I-70 in the 80s. Mm-hmm. When you Google I-70 Strangler, you're going to get this case. When you Google I-70 Killer, you are <laughs> going to get another case. Now, I thought about pulling in the I-70 killer as a third potential chunk of crimes because some people do put together all three of these cases. So the I-70 killer 
operated in Indiana, Missouri, Kansas, and Texas. And he basically was attacking store clerks uh-huh. in the Midwest and into Texas. Now, the connection is that all of those cases happened off of the I-70. And that maybe the thought is like, okay, he was traveling this way to commit these murders against these men. Maybe this way to conv- commit these murders against women. Yeah. Yeah. It's a stretch. Now, the I-70 killer uh, victims were usually uh, young women, usually brunettes, working as store clerks. And they were all killed via gun. So a different mm-hmm. MO there as well. So I bring that up, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, just to kind of talk about why some people link all of these things. Put that in like a little box. Okay. That there are people that believe those to be linked to the other okay. kind of two sets of cases we're talking about today. It seems like a stretch to me, but... Yeah, it does to me too. Uh, there's a theory that I want to talk about, and we'll see kind of what you think about that theory. My guess is that you're still going to feel like it's a stretch, but we'll find out. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. So I'm going to bring us back to the Fox Hollow Farm. Okay, okay. that's where we started, with little Eric mm-hmm. Baumeister and the skeleton he found in his yard. Okay. This is where I'm going to bring us the name of our suspected serial killer. Mm-hmm. Right here in the middle, because I'm a wild card, okay? Ooh. I know. I know. Remember Julie? She's mm-hmm. Eric's mom. She's got the skeleton. And she had gone into the yard and found some of the other bone fragments and brought them into the house. Yeah. So she's got, like, a fairly complete skeleton just chilling on her kitchen table that she's ready to confront her husband with. Okay. So, God love Julie for that moment. Yeah, way to, way to go, Julie. I'm not sure if this is the route I would have taken, but okay. Yeah, I'm still with it, though, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Julie confronted her husband, Herb Baumeister, with that skeleton. And she was met with Herb's typical mockery. We're going to talk a lot about Herb Baumeister and how he got to be the way that he is. But one thing that he was really, really known for in his life was a incredibly body sense of humor and a complete propensity to just mock the crap out of people yeah so he was just kind of mean but very quick-witted and for some people very very funny so juliet was met by mockery and herb is like my dad was a doctor after he kind of goes through like what do you think i'm robbing graves or whatever he you know tells julie my dad was a doctor this is one of his old anatomy skeletons uh-huh. I wanted okay, to sell keep it. Okay, going, Herb. Yeah, right? He's like, I wanted to sell it. They're worth a lot of money. But I also didn't want it to scare the kids, so I buried it in the yard for later. Get over it, Julie. Basically is the cliff notes of that conversation. Herb, fuck off. Yes. We'll be saying that a lot. Yeah. Julie, kind of used to this kind of stuff from Herb, tucked away her frustrations I kind of imagine her tucking away those frustrations in the same compartment that she talked all of her frustrations about Herb in. Um, yeah. Because they had a, a very contentious marriage, and mm. she was kind of used to just a lot of crap from him, to be honest. Like, he just put her through mm. a lot, and she just kind of, like, ugh, fine, whatever, you know, with Internalized it. it, and... Yeah, exactly. So... That is where the skeleton kind of leaves off, okay? Now, what brings the skeleton back to play were what I think are the heroic actions of a man named Tony Harris. All right. So let me tell you Tony Harris's story, okay? 
1994, Tony Harris went to the 501 Bar, which was a very popular gay club in Indy. In the club, they had posted up the missing flyer for his good friend, Roger Goodlett. And Tony and Roger were very good friends, and Tony was taking his disappearance very, very hard. So it was on his mind anyway. The missing flyer being in the club, not weird, right? But Tony noticed a man just oddly fixated on it, just staring at it with this really, really intense look on his face. Mm-hmm. So Tony just got this weird feeling about it. The intensity of the stare, he described the look as hungry in one piece of literature that I read. Eek. Yeah. And I don't like that descriptor. I know, it's really jarring, right? And he just had a feeling that this guy had something to do with Roger's disappearance. So Tony takes a chance mm-hmm. and he strikes up a conversation with this guy because he thinks, I got to figure this out, right? What's this weirdo doing looking at this poster of my friend? Exactly. And looking at it so intensely. I mean, looking at it is one thing, like it's there to be looked at. But, you know, the way that it's described is like this intense, hungry, like he won't break with it kind of look. Uh-huh. It's obsessive. Yeah. It's terrifying. So I got to plug this book real quick. So the Dayton Daily News was like super helpful with the I-70 Strangler stuff. Um, there's a, quite a few books about this series of killings. One that I found most useful was You Think You Know Me by Ryan Green. And he was able to get just a really, really good um, narrative, especially from Tony Harris. So I credit him for a lot of this information. So thank you. Appreciate thank it. You. I liked your book. Five stars. Thanks for being a good writer. Yep. So Tony kind of struck up a chit-chat with this guy. Uh, He's flirty. He buys him a drink. The man introduces himself to Tony as Brian Smart. Mm -hmm. And Tony noticed, like, okay, he's not that great looking. But worst case scenario, I have sex with, like, an okay looking stranger. (laughs) You know, like, what else? Uh, Best case scenario, figure out what happened to Roger, right? Okay. I mean, that's like literally what he thought. So, you know. I love his thinking patterns. <laughs> I know. You're going to love him even more as this story kind of rolls out. So, what he noticed about Brian was that he was, you know, kind of very plain Jane looking, but funny, witty, mm-hmm. kind of a sense of humor that went like a little bit too far. But, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of made up for some of his like ho hum looks, basically, for Tony. Like, okay, this is a conversation that's interesting, right? Tony also observed that it looked like Brian had some money. I mean, he was wearing an ill-fitted suit, but it was obviously very expensive. Okay. So, you know, like I said, not exactly Tony's type, but he was prepared to basically kind of bait him to get information about Roger. I like this approach. Yeah. I will be curious what you think about how this goes. So uh, they shared a few drinks, like I said, and Tony, very smart guy, starts to pretend that he's more drunk than he was, okay? Mm-hmm. And he agrees to go home with Brian Smart. Mm-hmm. So they get into uh, Brian's car, which is a light blue Buick, and they chat, they joke. Tony realizes that they're kind of driving pretty far, and he kind of makes a crack about, like, oh, you're not a city boy, are you? And Brian's like, no, I'm not. So Tony's kind of in the car, like, pretending to be more drunk than he is, and, like kind of dealing with Brian, like, feeling him up a little bit. So he's, like, externally pretending to be wasted. 
and internally trying to memorize every turn the car takes in the dark of night, mm-hmm. right? Can't see very well, but... And all of this is just in a gut instinct. Yes, it is. All right. It is. But he's, he's riding that gut instinct. I know. I know. I'm obsessed with him. So they pull up to the mansion at Fox Hollow Farms. And obviously this place is very, very impressive. So mm-hmm. Tony is like, wow, this is your place? And Brian kind of makes up this story about like, no... I'm actually um, a contractor from Ohio. I just house it for rich people for spare money sometimes. And then he's like, no, no, no. I'm a landscape painter. He just kind of tells these like wacky stories about what he does for a living. Mm -hmm. Tony's like, okay, whatever. Brian leads Tony first through a garage. The garage is like crazy overstuffed, like hoarder level. It's got three cars in it. So Tony is trying desperately to like memorize those cars. As he's walking through, he's basically taking in, like, every information that he can get so far from this place. So there is a sign leading into the estate that says Fox Hollow Farms on it. So that's one clue that he can walk away with, right? Okay. He's trying to memorize the cars. He's got a name, Brian Smart. He right away feels like the name is fake, but he's got something. So Brian then leads him to an indoor pool because we're at a mansion. Yeah. And Tony was shocked to see that the pool was surrounded by mannequins. This is creepy. I know. So he's like, what's up with the mannequins? Brian jokes, oh, don't worry. They just keep me company here. And kind of changes the subject really quick and asks if Tony would like any more drinks. Tony doesn't want any more drinks. And he makes a joke about, like, I want to still remember your name in the morning, which I think is very, very smart. Yep. Smart. Smart, smart. Tony describes that some anger kind of temporarily flashes across Brian's face, but Mm -hmm. kind of goes away quickly when Tony makes that little comment about wanting to remember his name in the morning. Very coy. I love this. Yeah. So he's just playing it very smart. He's like really on his toes, you know. Now, Brian disappears for a moment and takes a bump of Coke, which is obvious to Tony when he comes back. He's like basically like fizzing, right? And then he's like, hey, do you want to go for a swim? So Tony strips down and gets into the pool, expecting that Brian's going to come with him. Brian strips down, fixes a cocktail, and just watches Tony <laughs> swim. So Tony's like, this is weird. <laughs> this is one of those scenes that if I was watching it in a movie, I'd be like, really? I know. I know. And it's, it's real. That's <sighs> what's so crazy about this is like, this really happened. Mm-hmm. So... Tony's like doing laps in the pool because he doesn't know what else to do. But he's thinking, I don't want to get too tired either. Because if yeah. I'm too tired, I'm not going to be able to fight this guy off. So finally he hits the end of the pool and, you know, kind of kicks back up with some flirtation. Brian extends his hand and pulls Tony up towards some of the pool furniture uh, where they start to fool around a little bit. So in that process, he whispers in Tony's ear something to this effect. And this is almost a direct quote. And as he is saying this, he is both uh, masturbating Tony and wrapping a pool hose around his neck. He says, I learned this really amazing trick. If you choke someone while you're having sex, it feels really good. You get this rush. You should see their face when you do it. Their lips go blue. That's how you know you're doing it right. Hmm. So in this moment, Tony realizes that this had to be what happened to Roger. Yeah. Yeah. 
the hose gets tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. Tony really has only one rational choice. He's got to play dead. Oh, my God, Tony. Tony feigns passing out. Brian, for a few minutes, holds the hose tighter and tighter and then suddenly softens it, whispering, are you dead? Now Tony's eyes snap open, and Brian kind of puts on this false fear. He says, you know, he starts ranting about, there have been accidents. Oh, my gosh, don't do that to me again. People die doing this. And Tony goes off and starts screaming. Is this what happened to Roger? Was he another one of your accidents? How many accidents have you had? Mm-hmm. Risky. Mm-hmm. Mm. Brian could have reacted in any number of ways. Terrifying, right? Yeah. What he did was smile and said, let's sleep it off and try this again later. Fuck you, Brian. Mm-hmm. Brian did indeed fall asleep. And Tony took that time to go roam around the house. Because he's still thinking, if I can find anything to identify this guy, I can take it back, right? Tony is so brave. So brave. I cannot believe this. Yeah, he's so brave. And he's also like, I kept thinking, out of all the things you could do, he's smart enough to know he's out far out of the city. He's in the middle of nowhere. If he takes off running, where is he going to go? Really? Yeah, yeah. So he takes his chances to stay here and see what happens. God, that's so risky. I know. So he roams around the house for about an hour. He sees stuff that tells him this is a family home. There's women's clothing. There's kids' Mm -hmm. stuff. He notices the house is, like, packed, just like the garage, just like wall-to-wall stuff. Looks like junk. But he doesn't find anything identifying, like nothing with a name Mm -hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, okay, if I get back to the pool, I can root through his clothes. I can get a wallet. He's got to have a wallet in there. Yeah, yeah. So he goes back to the pool, and he starts to rifle through Brian's clothes. As he's reaching into Brian's pockets, Brian wakes up and says, are you robbing me, Tony? In this, like, mocking voice. Tony, who is always the picture of composure, just says, I was looking for your keys. I have to work in the morning. Can you drive me home? And Brian did. I want to give Tony a medal. I know. Me too. Like, I I can't handle him right now. He is a god in my mind. He really is. I am obsessed with Tony. And he had this man, like, wrapped around his finger. I mean, yeah. he made it out. He survived somebody that has a double-digit death count. Spoiler alert. And we can decide to cut that or not. No. No, I'm not going to cut it. I'm going to cut my part of interrupting you. Okay. But he reminds me of Melvet. Yeah. From the Cleveland Strangler. Me too. Me too. I had that thought too. Sly, like, talked her way through that whole situation. So smart. And so just that on your feet thinking is mm-hmm. crazy to me. So... Mm-hmm. Um, the condition that Brian had for letting Tony go, for driving Tony home, was uh, we have to make this a regular thing. I want to go out with you again sometime. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was the condition. And Tony agreed, right? He's got to get out of there. So Tony goes home, obviously, and he goes immediately to police to tell his story. Fuck. 
Yes. And they laughed him off. Mm. Yep. He goes to the FBI headquarters in Indy. They mm. brush him off entirely. Fuck you guys. This mm-hmm. man is amazing and got away from a serial killer. Yeah. And you won't even take him seriously. He's a hero. Yeah. His, his third stop, though, would be his lucky one. Yes. So he makes his way to the offices of private investigator Virgil Vandegriff. Mm-hmm. I am obsessed with Virgil Vandegriff. <laughs> he is a hero in many, many ways, including in this case. So... He uh, had previously worked for the Marion County Sheriff's Department, which uh, Marion County is where Indianapolis is. And he, at this point, like his website, it's looking a little outdated. It states that he has worked in investigation for over 40 years. I'm guessing that that website's a little old, so it might be more like 50 years. But he's got lots and lots of experience. And at the time of Tony's story in the mid-90s, Vandegrift was most known for specializing in missing persons investigations and bringing people home when the police Mm -hmm. couldn't do it. I love him, too. Um, yes. He was also known to use, like, really cutting-edge technology for the time. Mm-hmm. Police wouldn't necessarily go to right away. So he just mm-hmm. had a lot of resources, and he had really good people working for him as well. Yeah. So Virgil Vandegrift is the man. Yeah. And Tony came to tell his story. Virgil was shocked, but he believed him. Good. And not only did he believe him, but he kind of got that little spidey sense, too. Because he had just been visited by the mother of another missing gay man. Now, the mother of Alan Broussard had come to see Virgil about a week prior to Tony coming in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, initially just hearing from one person and the mom is describing things like, okay, there's drinking, there's drugs, there's a lot of clubs, you know. Initially, Vandegrift has the same reaction that police do, which is he's on a bender, he'll turn up, that sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But the cases start to pile up because these families and friends are seeing that police in the 80s and Indy are not taking the cases of missing gay men very seriously. (laughs) Can I say, before we get totally off of Tony and his story, if anybody ever tries to pass off that fawning isn't an appropriate response to a dangerous situation, fuck off. Like we've talked about the fight, flight freeze fawn response Mm. these people were able to solve this case it it contributed largely to the solving of a case because of the fawn response exactly exactly and like tony put himself in that situation but melvette didn't yeah and she was able to still use that right on Mm -hmm. her completely on her toes Mm -hmm. tony had a dark inkling inkling about what he was walking into melvette didn't you know yeah so yeah i'm totally with you on that totally with you Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, the story was enough to compel an investigator like Virgil Vandegrift to take it seriously. Yeah. And he's getting these cases kind of piling up on his desk as they get kind mm-hmm. of turned away from the police or as the families are just kind of unsatisfied with, mm-hmm. you know, what is happening in those investigations. So he thought something else was going on. So he took mm-hmm. Tony to go see Detective Mary Wilson, who uh, was one of his close kind of confidants with the Indianapolis PD. So somebody that he had kind of worked with like unofficially before. Now her colleagues were not impressed by this information when she took it to like her colleagues and superiors, but Mm -hmm. she saw connections. Yeah. She first saw connections to the I-70 Strangler Mm -hmm. and had a hunch this might be the same guy. 
Now, what makes that hunch interesting is that the I-70 killings stopped in 1991, right? Cases of these men missing from gay clubs start right at the same time the I-70 strangling cases stop. So there is that sense of continuity, of escalation, Mm -hmm. of a change in comfort level. We're going from kind of transient people to older guys, a little bit more established, kind of at these more popular clubs, inside of clubs, not at roadsides, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So she makes a connection that it might be the same guy. Mm -hmm. She'd also been told by some of her um, contacts on the street that there was a particularly violent John out there, kind of in that kind of locus. So that region, yeah. Yeah, so she makes that connection. Tony had been able to say to Virgil that he knew the place had farms in the name. So right away, Mary Wilson puts Tony in her car, and they just start driving north of Indy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're looking for that blue Buick or a yeah. place with farms in the name. Unfortunately, they drive for a while and they get nothing. They didn't mm-hmm. happen upon the farm. So basically, Wilson is like, okay, well, that didn't work, but I'm going to come and tail you at your meetup with Brian Smart the following Wednesday, which is when they had decided to make their date. Okay. Wow, okay. Yeah. Now, they both sat in the parking lot and waited, but Brian Smart stood them up. Why he didn't show up, we don't know. So that was frustrating. They thought they'd be able to tail him right away. So mm-hmm. Virgil Vandegrift puts one of his best guys on the job, this guy Bill Hisley. Cool name. All right. So Hisley drives around for days. I mean, he just hits the road, but he was a local guy. He knows the back roads. He knows where to go. And he finally comes across Fox Hollow Farms. Mm-hmm. So he drives up the long driveway, and he's hoping against hope that he sees a blue Buick or a pool. Anything mm-hmm. that can confirm that he's in the right place, right? Yeah. Anything. Any little clue, any little hint. Yeah. Now, of course, he can't do much more than just, like, drive up a driveway, right? You can't start poking mm-hmm. around somebody's property. So, you know, he doesn't see what he needs to see. But he does go back to Vandegrift and say, I found a place called Fox Hollow Farms. There's a very large home on the property. And Vandegrift is like, okay, let's get some aerial photos of the property and let's Mm -hmm. find the property owner. That's in public domain. All right. Nice. They are able to find out that the property owner is Herbert Ballmeister. Mm -hmm. All of this kind of transpires pretty quickly. And then there's a lull, right? They're looking. They're spending time in the clubs. They're not seeing anything that's helpful. Okay. So... Tony's story happens in mid-94. The -hmm. next move doesn't really happen until 96. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So between 94 and 96, an unknown number of other men would probably have been kidnapped from those bars, coerced back to, quote-unquote, Brian Smart's house, Mm -hmm. and killed. So Baumeister makes his way back into the scene, right? He was reportedly upset after what happened with Tony, It was a failed encounter in his view, but he makes his way back to the club scene and he didn't realize because he's an idiot that (laughs) Tony had, of course, warned people and it spreads like wildfire against a man named Brian Smart, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't even change his pseudonym. No, no. So when he starts to hit on a young guy at the bar and says, hey, I'm Brian Smart, what's your name? The young guy literally shouts to the bartender, it's Brian Smart, he's in here. 
and her Baumeister runs for the door. Okay. <laughs> Who happens to be in the club that night? Tony Harris. Ah, uh, yeah. Our hero, Tony. Did he punch him? No, but he Did runs. he clothesline him? <laughs> oh, okay. I wish. He does you one better, though. It's not violent, All right. but it's useful. Okay. Damn. Okay. I'll take it. Tony runs. He's able to get a very, very important piece of information, which is a license plate number for the car that Baumeister climbs into. Okay. Oh, thank God. Now we have, okay, here's the guy that is known to use the pseudonym. And here's a license mm-hmm. plate for this guy. The car comes back to her Baumeister, also the owner of the farms. Looking pretty legit, right? Got it. Of course, that information comes back to Mary Wilson. She takes the information to her supervisors. They're still not impressed. What more do they want? I know, right? Like, what else do you want? Come on. (sighs) But, you know, she just is like, I'm taking it into my own hands then. Fine. Mm -hmm. And she figures out where Herbert Baumeister works. He actually owns a store called Save-A-Lot. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, It's a -A Save-A-Lot. He owns a different Save-A-Lot. So there's Save-A-Lot where Save is spelled correctly. That's a line of grocery stores. That still exists. And then there's save a lot, like save a lot. And that is where Mary Wilson went to go find him, to confront him. And confront him, she does. She asks him first, hey, do you own Fox Hollow Farms? Is your name Herbert Baumeister? Do you own a blue Buick? And he confirms all of those things. Mm -hmm. And then she asks, are you involved in the attempted murder of Tony Harris? She just goes right for it. Of course, he denies it. She hits him with a list of names. Johnny Bayer, Alan Broussard, Roger Goodlett, Richard Hamilton, Stephen Hale, Jeff Jones, Michael Kern, Manuel Resendez. Any of them mm-hmm. ringing a bell? He denies everything. He says, I'm a married man, not some sex pervert. <laughs> and then Mary Wilson is like, then you won't mind if we search your farm, will ya? All right. And he, of course, denies her that and says, you can't do it without a warrant. And so Mary Wilson says, thank you, and leaves. What recourse does she have, though, is that she can call Julie, because Julie owns the property as well. Hell, yes, Julie. I know. Now, Herb is one step ahead of her and calls Julie. And he just lays it on really thick. He's like, Julie, baby, Mm -hmm. hey. Um, if the police come over, don't let them look at anything. They think we've stolen some stuff. Just don't let them on the property. It definitely know. has nothing to do with that skeleton that you found in the backyard. Definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely. Like, I stole a couch. You know? Like, just, you know, just let it go. Couch. Let it go. Yeah. You know, right? So, Julie, you know, agrees. She relents to Herb. She tends to, right? It's been her only mm-hmm. choice for many, many years to relent to Herb. Yeah. So... Pretty much right after they hang up the phone, Mary Wilson is at the door at Fox Hollow Farms. Wasting no time. Wastes no time. No. And she does not mince words, and I love her. Mm-hmm. So Julie's like, there's nothing stolen here. There's nothing for you to see. No, you can't look. <laughs> Mary Wilson, badass that she is, says, I don't care if everything in this house is stolen. I think your husband is killing people. Yes. So Julie, this is really satisfying. Isn't it? I know. Julie panics. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Wilson gets it, obviously. Wilson slips her her card, thinking Julie's going to crack eventually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And this sat on Julie's conscience for a bit. She's also been mulling over a divorce. So the same day Mm -hmm. that she decides to serve her Baumeister with papers, she calls Mm -hmm. Mary Wilson and tells her about the skeleton. How long in between is that? A couple weeks. A couple weeks. Okay. All right. All right. This is where everything falls apart for Herbert Baumeister. Damn straight it does. Yep. And the excavation of the property begins, or the search, at least. Mm -hmm. As this is commencing, Herbert Baumeister first takes one of their kids, Eric, the one who found the skeleton, and Mm -hmm. takes him up to his mom's cabin, which is kind of up here in the Michiana region along uh, Lake Wawasi. He's thinking, she's not going to do anything while I have one of the kids with me, right? Mm -hmm. The police come to the Lake Wawasi house and serve him with divorce papers. Good. The local police don't know that he's wanted for these murders in the Indy area. Okay. So basically he has to relinquish Eric. And he's like kind of left alone. Why does he have to relinquish Eric? Just because of the law, like the custody laws? Yeah, yeah. So the stipulation of the diverse, diverse, of the divorce papers was that she would be granted temporary emergency custody mm-hmm. of, um, of the three children that they had. So he has to relinquish Eric. Okay. So Herbert Baumeister then takes a road trip. While his home is being searched in Indy, and bones upon bones upon bones are being found on this 18-acre property while he's on vacation. During the course of that search, the remains of up to 11 men were found on the property. Mm-hmm. While this is happening, Herbert Baumeister drives up to Pinery Provincial Park in Grand Bend, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. And he parks his car along the beach. He has a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he shoots himself. So Herbert Baumeister's body is found by Canadian MPs before the excavation can be complete. Yeah. He left a suicide note that cited his failing business and his failing marriage as the reasons for his suicide. Liar. And he does not in any way cop to any of these killings. Bullshit. Now, like I said, 11 men's bones were found on the property. Mm -hmm. We're now in the, you know, it's 96. Over the course of the next few years, eight of those bodies could be identified. Okay. Those men were Johnny Bayer, 20, Alan Broussard, 28, Roger Goodlett, 33, Tony was right, Richard Hamilton, 20, Stephen Hale, 26, Jeff Jones, 31, Michael Kern, 46, and Manuel Resendez, 31. God. Yeah. My hope is that the other three men who are not identified will someday be Uh so that those families can have the information and the closure that the other families do. Yeah, I really hope so. Yes. Now, unfortunately, the case kind of ends with that suicide on July 3rd, 1996. That's so frustrating. Yeah. Because they were so close to catching him, and then all of that disappointment. Yeah. Because you want to see these people get justice. Exactly. And justice is not what they're going to get here, right? Yeah. 
So, obviously, Herbert Baumeister is the killer of these 11 men found on his property. Mm-hmm. He is also tied to the I-70 Strangler killings. Mm-hmm. Some people will also tie him to the I-70 killer killings. I'm not sure I buy it, but... How do we know, like, what is the connection between him and the I-70 killers? Okay. Like, what what made that connection? Well, that is where I'm going to get into a little bit of a crash course in the life and times of Herbert Baumeister. Okay. So, uh, how did we get here? How, how did, did we, we get what, here? How'd you get like this? How did you get like Why are this? you like this, Herbert Baumeister? Exactly. And what sucks is that, um, well, uh, you'll figure out why it sucks. So... <laughs> Herbert Baumeister Jr. was born in Indy, mm-hmm. so he did not go too far. He was the oldest of four. His parents are Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister. His father, Herbert Sr., was a very prominent anesthesiologist. So um, his dad was a doctor, very wealthy family, very comfortable life. Like I said, he's one of four kids. Mom stayed at home you know, with the kids. But the worst thing that we can say about Herbert Baumeister's parents is that his dad was just kind of absent. That Mm -hmm. old-fashioned, you know, 50s dad, right? Mm -hmm. Herbert Jr. was born in 47. So you get that kind of like Warden June Cleaver image. Mm -hmm. So, But that's the worst that anyone has ever been able to say about the Mm -hmm. Baumeister parents, that Herbert was kind of absent and that Elizabeth had kind of a temper. But we don't know for any kind of fact that she ever laid a hand on her kids. None of the other kids have ever said that. So, you know, worst case scenario, they just didn't get as much attention as they probably should have gotten. Odessa sounds like an average to even possibly above average 1950s upbringing. Exactly, exactly. So Herbert Jr. was reportedly a pretty normal kid up until puberty. Mm Mm-hmm. Prior to puberty, he was just, he was kind of rambunctious. He always had that mm-hmm. big sense of humor, but he had friends. He was pretty normal. He was the oldest of those four kids, and he was kind of a, you know, a good big brother, like kind of a ringleader type of kid, you know, birth order. Mm-hmm. When puberty set in is when things seemed to change in Herb's mm-hmm. mindset. He would amp up that sense of humor in these really big ways it started to make other kids really uncomfortable he developed Mm -hmm. an early obsession with pee as in urine and he would ask other kids what do you think urine tastes like and then ask them to let him drink their pee so that he could find out post-puberty yes that's so regressive yes right extremely unusual he would also take to if somebody had pissed him off Pun not intended. I can't believe I just said that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I hate myself. Uh, <laughs> um, no. No, no. I'm sorry. Leave it. Um, leave it. If somebody made him mad, <laughs> he would pee on their stuff. Like, if he had a confrontation with a teacher, he would pee on their desk. That's how he retaliated. He also had an early obsession with death, kind of in those pubescent years there is one story from his childhood that i found to be incredibly disturbing where he basically he's a pubescent boy 
He's never experienced, like, feelings of sexual excitement before. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't had, like, a, you know, I read a dirty novel and now I've got a boner situation. He hasn't had those experiences before. The first time he ever experiences arousal is upon finding the corpse of a crow on the side of the road. He begins to essentially plunge his hands into the corpse of the crow. And this is when he first experiences sexual arousal. He's actually about to hit his climax when another kid pops up and is like, what are you doing, Ballmeister? And he obviously kind of stops what he's doing and is like, hey, look at this cool dead crow. But that is what is cited as Herbert Baumeister's first sexual experience. Your take, doctor. Tinges again. Tinges again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I can't get over the peeing thing. Yeah. At four, three, four, five, literally I would not bat an eye. It's just like, God, that's annoying. Sure, yeah. Let's work on these issues. Yeah, and there's a fascination with those things at that age anyway. Like, my little girl is potty trained, but I still keep her in diapers overnight because she's not quite there yet on that. Uh She always wants to look at it in the morning. Like, that's not weird. Uh She's three, right? Yeah. But if she came to me and said, hey, mom, can I pee in your mouth? Mm, No, not, nah. You know? But he's like a teenager when he's doing this. Yeah, it's between like 11 and 14 is kind of when these anecdotes start to pop up. I feel like it makes me wonder if there is a trauma present that is just unknown. Yeah. Which would not be shocking at all. Yeah. Something happened that he never disclosed. There's some kind of needing to be an alpha Mm. but the problem is like where where is that like the other three kids have never said anything that indicates that the parents did not survive super long into herb's adulthood Mm -hmm. but you know the siblings obviously did and we have nothing Mm -hmm. on the record that explains any of this behavior we just have the behavior there's tons of possibilities. That's just the one that comes to my mind. And mm-hmm. just because none of the other children were abused doesn't mean that he wasn't. It could have been a teacher. It could have been a coach. It could have been yeah, that's a, good point. a priest. Yeah. I hate to drop a bomb for next week. <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, it totally. could have been any of these things. Totally. It also could just be a biological bipolar disorder, impulse control disorder, or mm. whatever, you know? Yeah. That very well could be. And now that you mentioned that, I know there was like a decent age difference between him and the other siblings. So Uh it could be that he experienced something different in his early life that the other kids didn't, like at the hands of somebody not in the immediate family. Yeah. That they wouldn't be aware of at all, just given those age differences. So that's a really good point. There's always a possibility of trauma, no matter how much we think kids are protected. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, Herb kind of goes through his teen years like this. He go, he was a good student in his early elementary years. He was really, like, studious and, and self-directed. By, by his teen years, he's completely the opposite. He does poorly in school. He lashes out. He makes other kids, like, teenage boys, which have the threshold that you would not believe. He makes teenage <laughs> boys uncomfortable with the stuff he's talking about and the jokes he's making. 
Yeah, there's some kind of drive to dominate mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And I don't know what I don't know what is behind that drive, but it's there. Yeah. And that drive you'll see kind of grow in his adult life as well. So he graduated high school and his dad basically was able to kind of work some of his connections to get him into IU, Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And he attended for a semester, barely a semester, but he couldn't hack it. He didn't have the study skills. He didn't have the attention span. He didn't have the drive. He did not make it. What did you say his dad did? Anesthesiologist? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I couldn't say the word, but yeah. Anesthesiologist. And he was very successful, like extremely successful. So I'm guessing there's a level of insecurity mm-hmm. and not good enough. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and you will kind of see that with Herb and his dad kind of over and over and over again. Because when Herb is struggling, dad kind of swoops in, uses the connections, uses the money, kind of tries to make it work for Herb. But there's a lack of intimacy mm-hmm. to it, right? Yeah. So when Herb kind of flunks out of that first semester at IU, his dad does swoop in and takes him for treatment for whatever is going on with him psychiatrically. Okay. So Herb is institutionalized for a short time. And in that time, he's diagnosed with schizophrenia. But we're talking about what schizophrenia meant in the mid-60s, not what it means now. So... Yeah. But this diagnosis for Herb is, like, life-changing because back in those days, schizophrenia was really conflated with DID, dissociative identity disorder, or what is colloquially known as multiple personality, right? And so for Herb, he's thinking, okay, I have multiple personality, which means the real me is not responsible for this, like, weird impulses. Maybe the real me is this, like, good guy, and there's just this other me that has these deviant thoughts and behaviors. He's splitting. Mm-hmm. So he kind of creates that fissure for himself. He goes back to IU. He takes some anatomy courses because he's a budding serial killer, and that's what you do. <laughs> he um, takes on extremely conservative political views. He joins the Young Republicans. He needs some narrative therapy, some internal family systems. Yes. Jesus, boy. He really does. And, you know, he fully takes on this alternative life, right? He's a young Republican. He's now, like, the upstanding son of a doctor. He gets a job at a newspaper, you know, by virtue of his dad. And he's really weird at the newspaper. He doesn't last long there either. But he meets Julie, who will become his wife. And they mm-hmm. get married in 1971. Now, over the course of their marriage... Julie will say that they only had sex six times in 25 years. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah. The stories that she would tell is that Herb would just basically not come near her physically. And that in the six times that they ever did have sex, that the lights had to be all the way off. That it was like obviously not very enjoyable for Herb. Obviously it wasn't enjoyable for her either. But that it had to have all these like conditions to it, basically. Okay, Dennis. Yeah, exactly. So Dennis Raider, Jesus. I know, there's okay. echoes of all of these people in there's this, right? echoes of everyone here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At the kind of the same time, like, so Julie was a teacher, and she was going back to school to take some extra classes. Herb is, like, kind of flitting around. He's not doing great at any of his jobs. His dad lands him a job at the BMV, which is the Bureau of Motor Vehicles here in Indiana. He, his aggressive personality 
in the late 60s as seen as leadership potential by the guy. Of course. Good job, white man. So even though he like yells at people at the BMV, girl, what are you doing? Are you getting a book? What is this? (laughs) Is that the DSM? (laughs) Yes, I have the DSM three. I had a two, but I don't know what happened to it. Oh, okay. Anyway, keep going. I'm just looking things up. So um, Herb works at the BMV for a while. He makes his way up the chain. He's fairly successful there. But he's still peeing on stuff as an adult at work. So uh, when he was upset with his boss, he would pee on his desk. And this just kind of became like an accepted thing at the BMV for a long time until Herb peed on the wrong thing. And he peed on a letter that was intended for a very important person. And that Mm -hmm. was the final straw. His boss was like, look, I'll give you a good reference. I just need you out of here. Okay. So those behaviors from childhood are perpetuating in the workplace as a 20-something adult. Mm -hmm. So after that, Herb gets a job at a thrift store and realizes that they could make a lot of money by owning a thrift store, which is how he founds Save-A-Lot, which ended up being a chain of two stores in the Mm Indy area between 88 and when it closed in about 96 when everything kind of fell apart so kind of during that time is when those killings begin right so Mm -hmm. pretty soon after they found save a lot they buy the fox hollow farms they bought the fox hollow farms i believe in 88 or 89 and the killings start very very quickly after that he's got a home space he's got somewhere that he can you know take his victims to And that also kind of represents an interesting turning point between the I-70 stranglings and the cases that took place at his home. Mm -hmm. That kind of gets us to the important bits, I think, of her Baumeister. In those years, between, especially in the 90s, between 90 and 96, when it all ended, Herb kind of has these multiple lives, basically, right? Mm -hmm. By day, he's you know, working at the thrift store and running these businesses, albeit poorly, and they were failing financially and would have had to close anyway, even if all this stuff didn't happen. Um, At night, he's going to the gay bars in Indy and Mm -hmm. looking for men. Now, he's going on long drives all the time. He's committing most of his crimes in the summer because in the summer, his wife would take the kids up to that cabin in Lake Wawasi, and that kind of left him alone in the house for months on end. But he was also known to take like long drives for his mental health and things like that. And that's how he gets connected to the I-70 killings is Mm. by virtue of his propensity to take those long drives. But also because we have that factoid about him feeling like he's got these multiple personalities within him, these multiple splits. So the thought is that he can kind of sublimate the killings of these men by overcompensating and then killing women as a way of like kind of straightening himself out so to speak yeah i can i can see the thought behind it i just it takes a lot of stretch yeah like i really have to kind of stretch the logic of even disorganized human behavior yeah It's so patterned. And if, like, those killings were happening on the same day or the same weekend, I might be willing to give it a little bit more of a thought. Mm -hmm. The killings of women were going out west, and the killings of men were going out east. Yeah. Which is thought to be a part of that split, 
right? If I go east, it's men. If I go west, it's women. If I stay at home, it's men in my own backyard at the clubs. I don't know. Yeah. It, it feels too much of a stretch. And even to, because you said he, the I-70 killer made it all the way to Texas. That's a long drive. He did. The only thing drive. for me that makes that stretch a little bit less elastic is mm-hmm. the fact that her Baumeister's brother was murdered in Texas during the time of the I-70 killings. Oh, okay. That murder that's, has never been solved. That's intriguing. But you're trying to tell me that a serial killer's brother ends up murdered and it's not related? I mean, weirder things happen. Look at Skidmore. True that. True that. Yeah. And, oh gosh, do you know the Stainer case, Stephen Stainer in California? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he's the boy that's kidnapped and survives for a, a very long time in sexual captivity, makes his way out, mm-hmm. saves another little boy. His own brother grows up to become a serial killer in his own right, the Yosemite killer. Yeah, so that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that, my friend, is the case of Herbert Baumeister. I'm intrigued by his history. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued by his psychiatric history because I'm me. Yes. Yes. I am sitting here with my DSM-3 because I was curious as to exactly what did qualify for a schizophrenia diagnosis in the 60s. So this is the DSM-3. It was published in 87. The Mm. 2 was in 68, so that was probably the one that was used to diagnose him. Mm -hmm. But in the DSM-2, there were a lot fewer disorders to even go through. Like You had fewer options to diagnose people. And this is also the time when homosexuality was considered a a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Putting myself in the mind of a psychiatrist in the 60s, I can see it being construed that, oh, this man is talking about these deviant sexual ideas, so therefore there must be delusions and he doesn't want them, so therefore they're intrusive thoughts, mm. a.k.a. it is schizophrenia. And, like you said, that kind of gave him the mental ticket to do whatever the hell he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Which, as a sidebar, is why I get so annoyed when people get all excited about, like, oh, my gosh, this serial killer was diagnosed schizophrenic in 1937. Like, that did not mean the same thing. That was, like, the catch-all, quote-unquote, extreme mental illness. Like, it does not mean that that's what they actually suffered from at all. No, I'm going I opened up. I'm just shocked at how little this book is. Mm-hmm. I know <laughs> compared, compared to the to. DSM-5, which is like massive. You could, you know, murder somebody with it. Don't do that, by the way. Uh, don't even read it. It's trash. Mm. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I can see a possible personality disorder in there. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm I'm just curious about kind of what his upbringing was like when he wasn't around family. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious about social groups and things like that because that's weird behavior, dude, especially to continue into adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. Something didn't get resolved, whatever it was. It did not get resolved at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a long way to go to, like, for revenge on even your boss. Like that, yeah. That's extreme. Yeah. So And so, like, a lot of people postulate like, that he had a lot of issues with his dad kind of being absent and that a lot of his moves later in life were to kind of punch 
theoretically punch his dad, right? Like, I'm going to make these moves and it's, you know, it's to spite my father or whatever. That feels like a stretch to me. I think that there had to be something bigger going on. But then the question that one has to ask is, are there people who have no trauma, no early history of issues like this, and something is just wrong? And I I think that that's possible. I think that's more the exception than the rule, but it's very, very much possible. Mm -hmm. We are biological creatures at the end of the day, and how your brain connects is how your brain connects there's neuroplasticity and all of that but Mm -hmm. there's such a huge variety and diversity in how our brains work and how we get rewards and how our moods and our personalities develop yeah and i just like given what we know about his history and we do know a lot and it's just so painfully typical although again like you're right there's a window that there's something that we don't know but given that that was the question i kept coming back to was I know it's rare. I know it's the exception, not the rule. But could this be the one guy Mm -hmm. where he really is just out of nowhere wired this way, you know? Have you ever heard of the warrior gene hypothesis? Mm, Yes, I have. Do you want to explain it briefly in this (laughs) two-hour episode? (laughs) I don't know if I can do a quickie on the warrior gene. So basically, there's this theory that... There's a specific, okay, it's the M, it's the MAOA. I had mm-hmm. to look up the exact gene. So there's this chemical in the brain called um, monoamine oxidase. It's implicated in depression and impulse control and overall body regulation. Um, some of the older antidepressant, medica- antidepressant medications were MAO inhibitors, mm-hmm. MAOIs. And there's this theory that there are certain people that don't process monoamine oxidase properly. And that leads to a dysregulation and is highly correlated with aggression, violence, impulse control problems, things like that. Mm. More commonly seen in men. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not a ton of support for the hypothesis, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, I think all of those things just kind of make you wonder. You know, like we've seen at this point, this is what, episode 42? Mm-hmm. We've, we've had cases where we've just been like, why, why, why? But I do feel like there's always been a little something to grasp onto. And with her Baumeister, there's just not other, but yeah. we know what his behaviors were. Like, that's not a mystery, you know? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting if you look like systemically and I, if I can totally nerd out talking about Bronfenbrenner's ecosystems, mm-hmm. we're always looking for what was happening outside of the person. What did their family do? What did their community do? What was mm-hmm. the system that allowed these crimes to happen and go on? But it's equally as important to look at what is in the biological system that is the person. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that. And I just wish that we had gotten a chance to know what that was. And I, I just mm-hmm. wonder how how this would have gone down in court had he not gone to or to Ontario that day. Like, what would have happened? What could we have learned about this? Yeah. And potentially what justice could these victims have, have gotten, you know? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to wrap it there, I say, because this is a very long episode. And if you have hung this far, we love you. We love you. Thank you so much. Make I... whatever edits you need to do. <laughs> so tell us about next week now that i've 
you know, mushed your You've brain with Herbert Baumeister. Yeah. <laughs> um, so next week we are going to be staying in Ohio. Mm. We're going to be traveling to a bit of an adoptive home, a adoptive slash ancestral home of my own. Mm. We're going to be in Toledo, Ohio, and we are going to be tackling the issue of clergy abuse. Ooh, boy. And a murder. Okay. So get out your content warnings now. Of course, I'll give them to you next week, but Mm. we are going to talk about clerical abuse, sexual abuse, those types of things. Yes. So this case has been in the works for months, so I'm really excited to finally hear it. Months. And part of the reason it has taken me so long to finally get around to is because it does touch on family, churches, and schools, and teachers in Yikes. some cases. Yeah. So I'm doing my very best on this case, and I really wanted to put some dedicated time into it. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's not one to shrug off. Not that we ever do, but you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I had to talk to a couple family members. and Which I'm glad you did, because I think it's really, really worth doing. So... Yeah, please come back for that, you guys. In the meantime, hang out with us on the socials as usual at Midwretched Everywhere. We love you. So upload your recording. I will. Oh my gosh, I will. I <laughs> promise. My mom was here for a week, and then I traveled. And anyway, um, anyway, we love you guys. Chat yes. with us on the socials. That's right. Um, Be nice. Eat cheese, and we love you. We love you. Yay! Yay! We made it. Yay! Okay, bye guys. Suck it, Helen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, literally attended a top 20 MFA program, so... Boop. Yeah. Boop. Boop. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway. (laughs)